I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She's moved the peace talks to the maze. Mo Molum was in the firing line over her visit to paramilitary prisoners. Once again, the maze was the focal point of a troubled peace process today as Mo Molum arrived for a visit that had been variously described as mad or brave. Sinn Féin suggested the governments colluded on UFF murders to keep the UDP in agreement talks. In light of the effort and commitment invested in the process to date, we have decided not to oppose the continued participation of the UDP within negotiations. Bill Clinton branded Jerry Adams' response to the 1996 Canary Wharf bomb pretty gutless. We need to restore a process that will eventually lead to all the requirements of the Good Friday Accord being observed. And Peter Robinson, concerned over spending, opposed storm and pop concerts, saying it wouldn't be big enough to hold the Reverend Willie McRae's gospel fans. Uh, he has thrown away taxpayers' money, money that could be used to build schools, hospitals, uh, much needed uh, in terms of bringing jobs to Northern Ireland. Those were just some of the headlines we've printed here in the Belfast Telegraph based on state papers from 1999, now made public, offering a glimpse of what was going on behind the scenes at the time. One of the journalists locked in the archives reading through these documents for us was our reporter Andrew Madden. He joins me now in the studio. Andrew, you're very welcome once again. Thanks for having me. Andrew, what are these state papers and why do they get released at Christmas time? Well, state papers essentially are correspondence between various government officials, you know, which would be private correspondence. You know, back in the 1780s, it would have been pretty much handwritten notes or typed up letters going back and forth between various departments and CC'd into various people. And then um, this year we've seen more with the, the birth of email. Um, so they pretty much show the behind the scenes wrangling behind the big political moves of the day. And they keep this stuff. Oh yes, of course. I think, you know, by law they have to keep a record of what happens. You know, some people might be a bit, uh, might be actually a bit surprised just how, how much, how many documents and how much detail they go into and how many things were saved. Even the likes of like small post-it notes they go on top of certain files and they might be fairly innocuous things, but by law they have to keep them. And essentially the state papers since 1976, um, any documents, they're subject to what's, what was called a 30-year rule. So after 30 years, they think it's safe enough for those to be made published. Now that was cut to 20 years back in 2011. I suppose many people might think, I might be quite surprised that maybe one note written about, you know, about a politician, about their character or something, written by one civil servant to another, one might 
consider, would it not have been more sens- sensible just to put that in the bin? And maybe some things have gone in the bin. But it does seem really, maybe I'm being naive here, really quite open and honest to keep everything. Oh, it is very much so. I mean, so some of them aren't really just you know dry and detailed political discussions about the minute of legislation. Some of them are what people might call just gossip or water cooler talk or, you know, I've seen ones that say, oh, I heard this the other day. Uh, did you hear that about so-and-so? Um, rumours about this and that. Some, some of it is very kind of, um, you know, innocuous kind of petty stuff, but for one reason or another, they've decided to keep these things. Maybe, and, and, maybe not, always, not always for... And for full knowledge thing. that one day they would be released, probably after a lot of these civil servants, let's be honest, are, are have retired. How, how yeah. long can some of these papers be kept secret for? Well, some documents, um, the way it works is essentially you go into the public records office and they have a list of what's called um, the open documents. That's the ones that are fully open. Um, nothing's um, classified in them whatsoever. And then some are partially opened. So even though they're 20 years old and they should be released under this 20-year rule, there's still parts of them that for whatever reason could be national security, they still had to be redacted. So they, they, they redact or take away a few pages from a file of maybe 30 pages. Um so essentially, if they want to keep something secret, they can keep it secret forever if they want to, really. Or they can put a ridiculous time limit on, like we've seen before in the states, where it might be released after 150 years or something out there. Yeah, yeah. but even in the states, sometimes you read a document and it's uh, it concerns the CIA trying to mm-hmm. assassinate someone, and you do realize, like, you sometimes think, well, why would you publish this? Like, you know? Oh, exactly. Yeah. No, it's very strange. And then you have to also remember, just there's just human fallibility. Sometimes files get thrown in that they probably shouldn't have and someone <laughs> might not have the, the authority um, to make it public decided to check the box that said open when they should have said closed. But if they really want to keep something secret, they will. Of course. Of course. Now, you've been, you've had your head in the boxes and mm-hmm. I'm sure they were dusty. I hope it was a well-heated room and prony. It's in... It's, it's in Titanic Quarter. It's in yeah, the Titanic Quarter. Quarter. Titanic Quarter, yeah, in the public records office. It's quite actually uh, a new state-of-the-art building. Um, yeah, so essentially you, you walk in, you, they, you have a, a list of what files you can have a look at, and then you select your ones, you hit the, hand it to the official, you go down to the vault, and they bring you the, the original document up and have a look. But, you know, you, no no pens are, or no, no pens are allowed in the building. Um, no, uh, you can take pictures of them on your phone, but they're very strict in terms of what you can and can't do. And what were the highlights? Like, what was the, uh, you've published, I think, a dozen stories from, from uh, uh, as has our colleague Sam McBride. What were the highlights for you? Well, I think there was a, there was a lot of stuff, really, that related to trying to keep the Good Friday Agreement talks, you know, in line, on, on you know, on track. Um, there was talk of Momolan wanting to possibly, um, you know, modernise the, uh, the oath of allegiance to the queen. That would allow Sinn Féin to sit in the Commons. So, you know, as Sinn Féin, you know, we've refused to take their seats in the Commons even when they've been elected MPs because they refused to take an oath of allegiance to the queen. So, Moam Olam suggested here possibly we could modernise this, you know, so we keep Sinn Féin on board. Because you have to remember, after the Good Friday Agreement was signed in April 1998, it wasn't until December 1999 until we actually had the institutions up and running. So, even after we got the sign and it was endorsed by the referendums north and south there was still a political limbo for a good year um, 
and we're years. talking about the, the documents we're talking about are known as the 1999 release in mm. actual fact most of these things relate to 1998 most of 1998 and yeah. that was the period and that's why it's very important of the Good Friday Agreement and it's the mm. Mo Molum era uh, indeed, and yeah. for people who mightn't remember younger people mightn't even remember who Mo Molum was she was mm. a Labour Secretary of State she worked with Tony Blair mm-hmm. she was quite uh, strong minded independent person she had a big personality and she she, she she had a big impact. Very much so, yeah. She was known as someone, she was a straight shooter, she didn't mince her words, um, she wouldn't be pushed around. Um, that's in, in one of the uh, interesting ones is her visit to the Maze prison. That was to keep the paramilitaries on side and keep the ceasefires in place, which were in place to allow the negotiations which led to the Good Friday Agreement to take place. Um, and she was heavily criticised. Once again, the maze was the focal point of a troubled peace process today as Mo Molum arrived for a visit that had been variously described as mad or brave. The only way that we are going to make progress towards a permanent peace in Northern Ireland is by taking a proactive stance and talking to reach the broadest possible agreement. Now, this was known that she faced criticism for it at the time. However, the state papers reveal behind the scenes that Almost all parties, except for those ones that were specifically linked to paramilitaries, essentially, it's completely, I don't even know what the strongest word to say about the, the scale of criticism. They, they, they talked to her, told her about moving the talks to the maze. They said she was paying more attention to terrorists than actual political parties. Um, and it was an incredible move. She went... You know, it was televised. There was protesters outside, and there's footage of her speaking to loyalists. Of, oh, yeah. uh, but particularly, she went in to speak to the to the UFF. Yes, to yeah. the UDA prisoners. Yeah, uh, yeah. She went and spoke to um, Michael Stone. He was, you know, the Milltown Cemetery killer, one of the most notorious loyalist paramilitaries, and also Johnny Mad Dog Adair, at the time. Um, was in prison. I think it would have been for directing terrorism at the time. Yeah, and the um, Home Secretary doesn't uh, enter Wormwood Scrubs to speak to no, Islamic terrorists. It doesn't happen. It, would, uh, it, was a, it was a bold move to take and it was a big, big gamble which would turn out later um, to have paid off for Mo Mullen, anyway. And you know, coming off that, the UDP, people mightn't remember the UDP, the Ulster Democratic mm-hmm. Party, Gary McMichael, yeah. they, they faded away, whereas the PUP remained. Uh-huh. Um, Sinn Féin suggested gov- the government's colluded uh, on UFF yeah. murders to keep the UDP in agreement talks because people were still getting murdered in this period. Yes, and this was an interesting one as well because um, even in recent years, you know, Sinn Féin have been known to uh, head out at, at so-called uh, collusion, you know, between... Um, the, the British state and loyalist paramilitaries, but they actually level this at both the British and the Irish governments. What happened was um, during the, the talks, the negotiations, the peace negotiations, um, two Catholic civilians were killed in Belfast. No one claimed responsibility, but it was widely believed this was the act of the UFF. Now, the UFF is um, a front name um, for UDA after they became prescribed um, so they could carry out murders, essentially. And, the, and they're the linked... Some would say they're the, the armed wing of the UDP, the Ulster Democratic Party. Now, it was very strange during that time for murders not to be claimed um, to some degree or intelligence to point towards um, the perpetrators. So Sinn Féin had this, had this notion, um, according to these documents during a meeting, that essentially the governments tried to keep it quiet because they wanted to keep the, the talks in the road because if it did come out that the UF did this, the UFF uh, did carry out this, um, then the UDP 
would be uh, kicked out of the talks because the, the talks um, uh, they abide by what's called the Mitchell Principles of Non-Violence. Staying with the maze, uh, the DUP's William McRae felt there was a conspiracy behind the maze murder of LVF leader Billy Wright. And we've, we've done a yeah. Billy Wright uh, podcast here. There was huge interest in that podcast if anybody wants to go back and listen to it. Uh, but the Reverend William McRae... Uh, he, 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 he he took a great interest in, in Billy so. Wright. Well, he had an interesting relationship with Billy Wright. I think a lot of people might remember there was an occasion where he shared a stage with him um, and, you know, spoke to a large crowd with Billy Wright standing behind him and he later came out and uh, defended this. Um, but right after, this was less than a month after Billy Wright had been murdered in the maze by uh, two INLA prisoners with smuggled-in guns, and a lot of people, which is very understandable, said, how on earth could this happen? You know, this is supposed to be the most high security prison in Europe. Two guys somehow get their hands on firearms and are able to kill someone. Um, so Willie McRae pretty much said during a meeting of the Northern Ireland Forum, I have documents here that point towards a conspiracy happened in the, the death of Billy Wright. But the documents don't go on to, uh, to shed much more light on that. And uh, this is a tenuous link, but staying with Willie McRae, staying with Willie McRae, and that's a quite a different story, but one that I was fascinated by. Peter Robinson, the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, Willie wasn't the DUP leader at the time, no. future DUP leader, uh, opposed Stormont pop concerts, saying that it wouldn't be big enough to hold the Reverend William McRae's gospel fans. Yeah, this is one of the more uh, lighthearted um, parts of the, the files. And you get quite a lot of these. Some of them are quite funny. But essentially during a, a meeting of the North Island Forum, <laughs> they were talking about opening up the grounds of Stormont. Stormont has vast grounds. And neither do park runs and all on it. Um, but the time was closed off. So they were talking about, you know, what can we do to utilise these grounds? Open them up to the public. Um, there was talk of walking trails. And then someone mentioned, well, we could hold a pop concert. Peter Robinson didn't like this whatsoever. Um, and during the meeting, the minutes of the meeting, it says, Peter Robinson was very opposed to pop concerts. And then some of the Alliance Party reps asked Peter Robinson if he could confirm a rumour that Willie McRae had been asked to do um, a gospel music concert. Willie McRae was also quite a well, well-known well gospel musician. And uh, Peter Robinson quipped, oh no, the, the grounds wouldn't be big enough to accommodate all those gospel-loving fans. In fairness... As part of my research into this podcast, I've been doing quite a bit of listening to the Reverend William McCray. that debt, he did not owe, and I owe the debt I could not pay. I As an older man, he has a fantastic voice. D- d- I have to give it to him, he does. He does have a fantastic voice. I remember actually uh, a few Christmases ago, someone bought me an LP of his as, as, as a joke, um, because I wouldn't be the biggest gospel music fan. But it's still a nice. Uh, and in all seriousness as well, um, we have had pop concerts in Stormont. We have, yeah, we have indeed. Um, yeah. But it is through at the period that the Peter Robinson was concerned, he seemed to be quite concerned about um, the, um, how can I put it, about spending and what and, and, and what people were concentrating yeah, on. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, another story that uh, occurs to me now, a lot of this, uh, there's a lot of mention of Bill Clinton Mm-hmm. former US president, who was a president who, who who did, whatever your views of Bill Clinton, he did seem genuinely interested and listening back to the clips, genuinely informed oh, very much about, so. about what was going yeah. on here. Yeah. Uh, for example, Bill Clinton branded Jerry Adams' response to the 
Canary Wharf bomb pretty gutless. Uh, he wasn't impressed by by that. He, Bill Clinton's own man in in London, urged John Major to be forthright with the president over Northern Ireland. So he was he was very much involved. And there's quite a few stories regarding Bill Clinton. Oh yeah, very much so. He, he took a keen interest in it um, ever since he took office in the states, and even before that, when he was um, when he was a governor, um, and essentially. In, after the the Canary the IRA's Canary Wharf bombing in 1996, which signalled the end of the ceasefire at the time, you know Jerry Adams he didn't apologise for it or anything, but he you know he came out and said you know it was regrettable that it happened. He blamed the British government for intransigence in terms of the talks, um, and he said you know I didn't know in advance about it. If I did, it would have put me in a very sticky position, and if I did, I wouldn't have warned you anyway because it would have compromised my Republican principles. And I have to examine my conscience in terms of was there something more that I could have done but so does everyone else and that includes the British Prime Minister Mr Major. Did he do enough? And I think the historical record will say he did not do enough. And Bill Clinton who a lot of critics said was a bit too green actually, you know said this that was pretty gutless he should have actually you know put his foot forward and you know and did the right thing in that time and then um, yeah it, an interesting one is you know Bill Clinton's own man in London actually um Briefing John Major to hear, like, when you're talking to Bill Clinton about these things, don't be too, you think he, he thought the British were too polite on occasion. He was like, don't be afraid to put your foot down because uh, Bill Clinton could be quite a forceful character, you know, you know, he's, you know, he's president of the United States. Um, but essentially, um, Bill Clinton's advisor said to John Major, look, you're the British government as well. Um, show him where you stand and, and don't be pushed around. Yeah. After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. He was followed by George Bush. Mm -hmm. And George Bush was not interested at all in Northern Ireland, Downing Street quickly established. Very much so, yes, yes. It just, it seemed to be, there was um, papers which detail after he came into office, his uh, meetings with uh, various government officials. Um, And of course, this has been around the time, well, you know, this would have been prior to the, um, September 11th attacks whenever terrorism kind of came into focus but um, in all the meetings he had he'd never mentioned Northern Ireland once which was in vast contrast to Bill Clinton and this was actually pointed out um, it, was, it was the dog the dog that didn't bark as one official put it was Northern Ireland during those meetings I mean but why would he? Hmm? Why would he? It's the, a small population the troubles as huge a tragedy mm-hmm. for, the, for the everyone who was hurt Injured or murdered or mm-hmm. killed in the troubles. Mm-hmm. In world terms, it's it's a few days of of combat in a major war. So I mean, were we spoiled by Bill Clinton, and then did we come back to reality with George perhaps Bush? you could say uh, that Bill Clinton's interest was a bit above above what would be considered normal? But then I suppose you have to understand at the same time that there is a vast um, Irish American, you know, population. People trace their Irish roots, and they're very proud of their Irish roots. And also a lot of um, fundraising for political parties like the SDLP and Sinn Féin was done in America. Um, there was cases of you know gun running from the states to the IRA. You know, so there are um, quite strong links between the states um, and uh, Northern Ireland and political parties here. And government fears Good Friday Agreement talks could be derailed by proposed ban on foreign fundraising for political parties. Was another yeah. headline you had very much so. Yeah, this was to do with um, a Labour Party um, policy commitment, which they pretty much said we're going to ban foreign fundraising. Now, this wouldn't be such a big deal, you know, maybe for the parties in London, but when it came to parties in Northern Ireland, officials kind of warned here: this, you know, you might need to 
to finesse this a wee bit because Sinn Féin got a lot of funding from the States, uh, mainly from an organisation called Norad, Northern Aid, um, which critics say was a front for raising money for the IRA. But regardless, but the, uh, the SCLP, John Hume did tours of the States as well and the SCLP got funding from there. So essentially they, th- they thought that, well, if this comes into force, then Sinn Féin and the SCLP are going to just stand up and say, we're not getting involved in the talks of this because you've, you've done us dirty in this one. And one of the big changes I think we we, we have seen, and a permanent change uh, we have seen in the peace process, because of course you could argue that the Good Friday Agreement, although everyone speaks about it as if it's the uh, as if it's written on tablets, mm-hmm. but the reality is we you know there's been so many agreements since. Oh, very much. But so one thing which is, is permanent from the period is the PSNI mm-hmm. and the reforms, and they came about from the patent. Perf- uh, reforms. Mm-hmm. But disbanding the RUC was not on the Labour government's agenda and they said that less than two years before the patent reforms. Is mm-hmm. that is that just how governments work? I would dare say yes it is. Like regardless if they had been um, on their agenda or not they wouldn't, do, they wouldn't have said or if they had been on agenda they wouldn't have said. Um, essentially this was uh, a minutes from a briefing notes prepared prior to a meeting between government officials and Sinn Féin. And he said, you know, this might be raised about the PSNI. So what do you say? Because Sinn Féin essentially wanted the PSNI to be completely disbanded, like the beach specials that had been done back in the day. Um, and the brief note just simply says, um, disbanding the RUC is not on the government's agenda. Now, I fast forward two years later, after the patent reforms, the, the RUC isn't technically disbanded, but it ceases to exist and is replaced with the PSNI. This is the new image for the police service in the north, which replaced the RUC. Members will wear name badges rather than numbers, one of the recommendations of the Patton Report. What we see before us today is not simply a new style of uniform, but a symbol of a fresh start, a new beginning. Now, a lot of critics, especially unionists and David Trimble, were were completely opposed to the patent reforms which eventually happened they, they thought it just skeletonized uh, the RUC and removed all vestiges of Britishness from it um, but essentially it shows you that regardless of what uh, the, the party said to your or the Labour Party said to your before that maybe they had different things on their mind we're into the nitty gritty of, of what things mean I mm-hmm. mean was Sinn Féin slogan was clear disband the RUC exactly uh, that uh, didn't happen. Yeah, no, we're not. We're not disband. We'll just reform. But it was yeah. reformed. It was renamed. Mm-hmm. Um, renaming, and on the one hand, is, is superficial. But mm-hmm. for unionism, for exa- example, I mean, people died in the uniform of the RUC. That's it. It's a very, very sensitive subject. I mean, I mean, scores of RUC officers that were killed over the course of the troubles, off duty RUC officers. You know, so it was something that was obviously um, very close to unionist hearts. Um, but then, I suppose, in the, during the negotiations, there was a balance on that between, you know, nationalists' um, criticisms of the RUC and being too heavy-handed or maybe unfairly targeting the um, uh, the nationalist community. Um, but then you have to remember as well the, the patent reforms. It wasn't just a name change. I mean, they brought in 50-50 recruitment. Um, they set up the police ombudsman. Um, policing they, board. Policing board. Um, they set up a lot of new oversight and pretty much... Um, they took away, you know, special branch essentially. Um, yeah, so it and Sinn Féin bought into policing. Eventually, yeah. Yes. Eventually, it would be several years later, but they did eventually take their seats on the policing board. 
These events that we're speaking about, 1998, now a generation ago, mm -hmm. and when I say that we're talking about 25 years ago, and there will be some of our listeners who simply, and it's quite unbelievable, were not born at that time. Mm -hmm. and But one of the huge events of the period and one of the background events of all of this was the marching issue. There were two things, I suppose, I mean, uh, state papers saying that, you know, Sinn Féin had whipped up this, this this the impression by the end that Sinn Féin had, were behind the residence groups that were involved. For people who don't know, um, certain traditional routes walked by the Orange Order, for example, the Drum Cree and the Garvahi Road dispute. Those were, had, were or had become nationalist-dominated areas and people didn't want to be, mm -hmm. in their terms, walked all over by the Orange Order and there was a huge dispute. A dispute which has faded away now. I know for many mm -hmm. loyalists and orange men that this is still a, still a, a, an open wound, but the Quinn murders the, of three children, they, they, they it changed, they, changed everything. everything. It changed, it changed everything, everything yeah. overnight. Yeah, because the drum creed dispute um, was going on year after year and there didn't seem to be any way of really solving it. I mean, there were standoffs, there was riots, there was millions costing security um, and there just seemed to be both sides. It was, you know, uh, there was no movement and it just, it just seemed to be a thing that was going to be repeated every year after year and then um, a house in Dunloy got petrol bombed um, by loyalists and three young Quinn boys died and I remember I think probably one of the most um, the most heard soundbites from that time would have been one of the senior orangemen saying look no road's worth someone else's life and that pretty much it, it took the uh, the wind out of um, all I, the I, I mean days happening. after that the, the for example on the Lower Armour Road the Orange Order did walk it down did, the yeah. road but it was uh, yeah. it wasn't it's not the way they wanted to walk down the road and they were allowed to walk down it, it, it was just it changed yeah. everything yeah, yeah. I, 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 and it's one of those it's one of those moments I suppose yeah it's a watershed moment really yeah um, just some, our colleague Sam McBride was also mm -hmm. working and I, and I picked some of them out that really occurred to me uh, mention of the names Ruth Dudley Edwards or Sean O'Callaghan infuriated the Irish government according to an NIO official I, I was quite surprised by that because I would have thought that the views of Ruth Dudley Edwards and Sean O'Callaghan who was in the end of the day a Garda agent yeah. uh, would have been inconsequential yeah. inconsequential or even in line with Irish government thinking, but maybe I'm wrong about that. No, not at all. Well, Ruth Dudley Edwards was very critical against um, several um, Irish government policies, like extradition and whatnot. Sean O'Callaghan obviously was um, an IRA informer for the Gardaí, um, and he was also quite critical um, at times of the Irish government. Um, so, but yeah, this seems to be kind of petty in the sense where there was this, the paper, the, the Ruth Dudley Edwards said, or it said that Ruth Dudley Edwards and Sean O'Callaghan had come up with, with this initiative. It doesn't actually mention what the initiative is exactly, but it seems to be um, some way of getting around the drum cree um, conflict. Um, and it pretty much says, okay, we'll have a look at this initiative, but no way, don't mention the names of who's, who's sponsoring it, who's putting it forward, because it infuriates, those names infuriate Irish government officials. Yeah. So his personalities, I suppose, as well. Is, is, um, so we were always know. dealing with people and their personalities, etc. Yeah, yeah. Because you sort of think that, the, because the government officials are rather faceless and you would ex yeah, yeah. expect that, uh, you know, they'd just be doing yeah, their job. Yeah, you had to remember sometimes people just don't like other people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, obviously, uh, the jabbing was felt, if, if you yeah, want to put it yeah, that way. Yeah. So, um, 
Uh, there's a number of stories too about Bloody Sunday, and, mm. and uh, you know, just nationalists had an inability to come to terms with Bloody Sunday. Uh, I think, I think, I think that that has been solved since, if, you, if as, as far as it can well, be. Yeah. I, I know there are ongoing the consequences of that, but yes, uh, you, you know, there's court court cases, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, that Irish officials were plagued by Bloody Sunday relatives seeking money for their lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, it was quite a, still a, a live issue then. Yeah, well, see, this would have been you know after the Widgery Tribunal, um, which was set up immediately after um, Bloody Sunday, um, which was seen as a whitewash, pretty much it absolved soldiers of any blame. Um, no, obviously this angered the nationalist community and nationalist parties. Um, something shocking, really. And one one of the papers um, uncovered by Sam uh, shows that one NIO official, actually Sir John Chilcott, who went on to lead the inquiry into the Iraq war, said, and it was actually noted in the papers as well, that they probably weren't the best words to use, that nationalists had an inability to come to terms with Bloody Sunday. So essentially saying they should get over it, really. Um, so it was just, it was one of those things that probably wouldn't have been said out loud, but it was said within the, these papers, or recorded in these papers, wouldn't have said out loud in public. Do you get the sense reading through the NIO papers that the civil servants involved had a political stance. I mean, was it the was it the stance of the British government of the day or did the NIO have a particular stance? That's a good question. Um, I think everyone, regardless of their position, their job, has a stance, a personal stance, a personal feeling about something. Whether or not the the fall orders as such you know essentially the government of the day pushes policy forward officials are told this is what we want to do get it done but the officials on the ground might know a lot more about the political realities on the ground than those who are directing policy so I, think I, I say that because I mean clearly the NIO it's the Northern Ireland office yeah. it's the Northern Ireland mm -hmm. it's part of the Department, if you want to, yeah, if you want to yeah. put it that way, uh, of the British government. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly, uh, how can I put this? I mean, clearly, whilst it, whilst it, there are many negative things about unionists as politicians, I mean, uh -huh. clearly, like this isn't a neutral body. I, well, it is an office of the UK government. It is, you know, a British government department. Um, um, not not that that means that everyone that works there comes or, or considers themselves British, but I would put money on saying that the vast majority of them would. So therefore, you would think maybe therefore they'd be on the unionist side. So they would they would kind of support those policies and maybe kick back things that are being seen. But as still, green. there was things said about David Tremble. But there was that, still there was you know, people that worked in the office. The, the uh, Northern Ireland office seemed to be more closer to um, had their ear closer to the grindstone, and, and there's a lot of people, uh, officials that were openly critical of unionist politicians just as much as they were of nationalist politicians. Um, and there was occasions where they tempered something because they warned, you know, nationalists might not like this and vice versa. So I have to say, and from what I've seen, they have been fairly even-handed. Yeah, uh, even-handed perhaps, but nevertheless, a political force. A force, yeah. yeah. A political force and a presence and a political force and a political gravity trying to take everyone somewhere that they wanted them to go. A force. I, 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 and yet unaccountable in many ways. I, yeah. I, 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 th I think that when you see these documents, and I'm not going to be, a, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theory theorist, but you do see that they had a collective vision. No, of, of course. That's the one thing actually that uh, I will say about these particular documents that were released this year 
you see the scale of the effort that went behind keeping the Good Friday Agreement going, making sure that the referendums passed, making sure that people were still involved in the talks, making sure that institutions worked. I mean, everything that was the be all and end all. Um, and it just, yeah, and it's it's admirable, really. But then you see now, perhaps this day and age, people criticizing the Good Friday Agreement as being passed to sell by date. But you had to remember at the time, they were just they were just trying to end the troubles, you know, uh, 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 and they were nervous. They, I mean, they had polling and they had made they were doing focus groups, and they yeah, were yeah. nervous about the amount of support for the Good Friday. Oh, Agreement. Was, it was no means a given that the Good Friday Agreement was passed. I mean, there was actually a lot of. Um, a lot of the documents, you know, talk about focus groups and talk about um, uh, doing, you know, surveys and getting the public feeling. And there was a lot of doubt whether or not this would actually happen, particularly among unionists. Among nationalists, the poll suggested maybe about 70% will back this. Unionists, it was around 30. And it really needed the buy-in of both communities. Um, and let's be honest, the vast majority of nationalists backed the Good Friday Agreement yeah. and... A slim majority, slim. We, we accept now, of, of, of unionists accepted the Good Friday Agreement at the time. Yeah. Despite despite what we say now, and the, and the DUP were implacably opposed, oh, despite the rhetoric now about the Good Friday Agreement. Exactly. So yeah. it's all, it's it, it was clearly a, a very profound period. There was a lot going on and... It, it we we have had in these documents as ever a very interesting look behind the curtains. We have indeed, and uh, and each year this happens, you learn a wee bit more uh, about the history, and I think that's what really state papers all about. You know, there's that old saying it's used far too much, but you know, if you don't learn your history, you're bound to repeat it. And uh, yeah, this this shows us just how how much went into the institutions that many of us now take for granted. Andrew Madden, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from RTE and AP. And if you want to read more about what was in the state papers, go to belfasttelegraph.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.